everybody, welcome to the Cardboard Box Podcast. This is a new series we're doing, so please like and subscribe if you'd like to see more of these. I'm joined by Michael Pender. Yo. Stephen Hill on, well, in Japan. Hello. And myself, Sean. So this episode, we're going to talk about defunct game studios. Uh, now, these are studios that have closed down or merged into another studio for one reason or another. And how we're going to format this is we'll each give some background and history on a studio that we've brought to the table, and we'll have some discussion about it as well. Um, so, Michael, why don't you take it away with your studio? Cool. Um, thanks, Sean. Okay, I want to bring you back in time now. Back years, years ago, to the year... Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> to the year 2004, if you can even remember back that far. Um, the Matrix re- Reloaded. <laughs> Shit, maybe. Well, that, maybe yeah. that was, uh, the cultural landmarks I have were... Green Day were riding high in the charts with American Idiot. Um, I was starting secondary school. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's going to be on the Wikipedia page for 2004. (laughs) Shrek 2 was uh, tearing up cinema screens, (laughs) winning every Oscar. Um, Mark Zuckerberg made Facebook. It's mad to think that was 2004. Yeah, but nobody was really into it for a while, I guess. Yeah. Old ones doing shitty quizzes and spreading alt-right fucking propaganda. Ah, the good old days. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> another event more relevant to this podcast that happened in 2004 was three former LucasArts developers, Kevin Bruner, Dan Connors, and Troy Molander, founded Telltale Games. Now, what's interesting off the bat is that it's formed from LucasArts, which sort of disbanded and got more merged into the whole lucas fucking franchise star wars machine um they used to be known for making like adventure games um other point and click sort of games um but then they disbanded and a lot of the developers went in different directions so these three guys formed telltale and another major studio formed from that closure was double fine which oh, tim no schaefer started I'm going to come back to them because there's an interesting comparison to be made between those two studios because they came from very similar origins. Anyway, um, Telltale formed in 2004 and their initial goal was to focus on adventure games using an episodic release format, which was pretty novel at the time. I know nowadays we have Life is Strange and Hitman and loads of other games get released uh, episodically and we're very used to DLC and levels and stuff like that coming out. But back in 2004, it was a lot less common. Like like I was saying earlier, this is the year Facebook was made. Like it wasn't even <laughs> a big thing back then. So for them to start with this goal in mind, that was pretty forward-looking and innovative. Innovative? Innovative. Innovative in a lot of ways. Anyway, let's get into the games. From the very start, they sort of had their formula down. Their initial goal was to make these quasi-adventure type games now adventure games are those point-and-click games like Monkey Island etc make these quasi-adventure games based on licenses so they would get licenses for TV shows comics movies etc and make games based on those Um, their initial games used like fairly well-known licenses from smaller IPs nothing too big Sam and Max Save the World was one of their first games in 2006 um, of course, that was previously an adventure game by LucasArts, as was the new Monkey Island games they made. And they released actually released a Waltz and Gromit game in 2009, which I had forgotten about. What? 
Jeez. Yeah, they made a Waltz so I, and Gromit game. I didn't even, I'd never even heard of that. There's so many, like, weird licensed games that they made that I had no idea about. Anyway, um, Waltz and Gromit is based on the Aardman Animation Studio creations. You know, it's the old guy and the dog is smarter than him and he invents shit. Yada, yada, everyone knows. Um, <laughs> but Waltz and Gromit's a good example of the telltale formula. And a lot of their games stuck very rigidly to this formula, which is something we'll come back to. They had really good presentation. It tied in really well to the source material. Um, like in Waltz and Gromit, it's got that same humor, the same aesthetic, you know, that sort of plasticine looking art style. Um, even the menus and all look sort of quaint and it's got that weird Waltz and Gromit vibe. So every time they made a game, they were very good at tying it into whatever um, franchise they were part of at that time. Um, that took a particular talent to do. So it had great presentation, like I said, simplified adventure game mechanics. So they stripped out a lot of the more frustrating elements of adventure games. You know, the obtuse puzzles, like Steve probably has really good examples of this because he knows adventure games. But, you know, like if you need to get through a door, you need to mix a fish with a wheelbarrow (laughs) and then throw thumbtacks at a priest. classic puzzle. Yeah, (laughs) like those sort of crazy ones. Sierra (laughs) games were really bad for this as well. Like they were so punishing and... Like, even, even LucasArts, which, which were, like, a bit milder by comparison, they still had some crazy ones at some points. But, yeah, the Telltale formula was to smooth down those edges and make them a lot more logical. Like, you get a key, you open a door, etc. Mm, but a flaw that might be, they made them too easy, possibly. Telltale games also focused on humor and character in the writing. So they tried to emphasize some of the better parts of adventure games, which was, you know funny item descriptions and a stronger narrative focus on character like Grim Fandango all these games like had a really cool story really well written and uh, say what you like about Telltale games like a lot of their games even their less popular games are very well written and that's something you can even see back in Wallace and Gromit they tie it into the humour of Aardman and they do a really good job with it I have to say there is some flaws to smoothing down the edges of adventure games you lose a lot of the challenge um, Telltale games are never difficult for in a mechanical way as in it's not difficult to get to the end of the game and you know a common flaw thrown at them is that they're more like interactive TV shows mm. than games themselves in this first run of smaller IPs that they collected they also released a fucking CSI game no which way. I had no idea what? about and I really want to play it now because um, it looks like hot trash. It actually looks like Telltale's <laughs> worst game because it doesn't even have all the writing. Well, I've only watched a few clips on YouTube, but it doesn't have all the writing and all the, you know, the cool atmosphere. It's just like those are shitty menus where you do like an autopsy mini game or a fingerprinting mini game that sounds or some shit like that. But who knew fucking, I know CSI was huge, but I didn't realize they had a fucking Telltale game. I think they've had a few games. Really? <laughs> I think so. I had no yeah. idea. Um, but yeah, that's on my fucking bucket list now. So these games um, were fairly well received by critics. I got some okay reviews, like Sam and Max was a revival of that um, series and people liked it. And so they, they did okay numbers in terms of sales. This meant that Telltale could acquire more IP to make games on, more licenses. Uh, so in 2010, they made a deal with NBC Universal to make games based on the Back to the Future and Jurassic Park franchises. This continues the same formula. They make simplified adventure games with a focus on 
character and narrative and that tie into the universe. Jurassic Park did mark a move towards slightly more mature, serious tone. Um, and you'll see that coming up in their later games a bit more. Um, the early Wallace and Gromit stuff tended to be, you know, more lighthearted. But for the most part, they haven't reinvented anything yet and probably won't at any point. Sorry, can I just say there's been 12 CSI games? Wow. <laughs> I just checked it there. 12 CSI games. Are half oh of those God. like shovelware, like, some, like crappy f- mobile games? Yeah, or? and like Facebook games. Facebook <laughs> so, games. Yeah. I guess Jeez. they still count. Yeah. They still count as a... There yeah. has been like, I think a PS4 game as well. What? I remember there was like a, a 24 PlayStation 2 game and I really wanted to play it because it looked really, really bad. Like painfully bad. It was on the same bar. I remember when like lost. Remember when PS3 got launched and there was a lost PlayStation 3 <laughs> game. They look, it looked that level of terrible. Oh my god, yeah, that but, was so bad. But 24 does seem like it would almost suit uh, a, a video game adaptation. I, I played reason. that actually, yeah. But you not, played the 24 game, yeah. But it wasn't. why have you been sitting on this? <laughs> uh, it just wasn't done. I no, sorry. Well, no, I, I either played that or I played the Born Conspiracy. Which oh, actually yeah. wasn't too bad. I heard that was okay. It was just a generic third person. Yeah, it was hero. very on rails. Uh, oh, okay. for a lot of it, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, Telltale. Um, <laughs> they did more than make CSI games, kids. Okay. <laughs> um, so they got this deal with NBC Universal. They made Jurassic Park and Back to the Future games. Um, more serious tone came in. Also, they started doing um, in their previous games. They were their adventure games light. So you're doing puzzles, stuff like that. But they started to introduce more dialogue puzzles in this one. It would be the best way I'd describe it. So basically, they're just bi- dialogue choices. But classic to Telltale, there were difficult choices to make. And they also introduced the timer into it. So this is sort of ingenious in a way. Um, I know there's been timers with like stuff like this. You know, Shemnew had uh, quick time events <laughs> that you had to complete very quickly and like were very frustrating a lot of the time. But to have a dialogue choice with a timer that really does like put the pressure on you, especially if it's a choice you really don't want to make and you really want to think about, it forces you to like, okay, gut reaction. What do I think I want to do in this point? And it's that's pretty ingenious, especially the way they use them in the games. They don't overuse them generally from the Telltale games I've played. They only use them in like really difficult choices or times of like high stress or tension. You'll see that a lot in The Walking Dead as well. One thing I would see from Telltale is they didn't innovate enough, but I do think subtly, once they, they their formula was pretty good for a time, you know, and this was one part of it. It was sort of cool to introduce these, like, dialogue choice puzzles in a way and force you to go down these potentially branching narratives. But yeah. one flaw is the games weren't quite as branching as they seemed to be. They always ended up at the same point. Anyway, mm. um, so Jurassic Park and Back to the Future were again great successes, even more so than their first run of games. Steve Allison, the senior vice president of marketing, called Back to the Future their most successful franchise to date. So they were making money on these games. They weren't the like headline news everywhere, but they were making money, especially in a genre that everyone thought was dead. They were doing well. So um, what they did is they bought even more licenses. So in 2012, they released The Walking Dead, and that's sort of the the high point of the whole studio, really. It was an instant smash, and it's the the game and the series that they're forever going to be defined by. 
um, it was one of the most emotionally impactful narratives yet made in the game. And there were so many articles written about it and so much focus put on this. Um, even Steve, I think, put it forward for uh, one of the games of the decade. And it definitely deserved to make the long list for that because it was very important and so different from what came before it. Like, and it influenced so many games going forward. We'll get into that anyway. Again, had a great use of that dialogue choice mechanic. Um, it really made you deliberate on these choices or have to panic and use your gut. I think one thing Steve mentioned about the game before is it never feels like the right choice. No matter what you're doing, it's none of these. You know, at the same time as this game out game came out, Mass Effect was a big franchise still back then. Mm. It wasn't fucked like it is now. Those games had a dialogue choice system, but it was way more binary. It was, you know save the orphans or kill the puppy dog. You're either doing something like really angelic and noble or you're doing something completely abhorrent. Um, but The Walking Dead, there, it was like straight on, on the grey zone, basically. You didn't know. You had to make ch- tough decisions. You had to put people's lives in danger. You had to think about the group versus the individual. Really good. And the fact that it used this zombie outbreak as a backdrop for this, um, really well-established the context for all of it but also it made you think that this could be part of any natural disaster just when humans get put into these life or death situations they have to make these choices it's fantastic because that's sort of the from what i can gather that's sort of the the philosophy or the you know the aesop's fable of the comic series and tv show is it's not about zombies it's about how people react to these trying times had fantastic voiceover performances. Um, it was a huge hit because it dovetailed with the popularity of the AMC, The Walking Dead TV show, which was huge at the time. YouTube loved it. The amount of fucking this game made me cry uh, videos that were made on The Walking Dead is crazy. I remember <laughs> the first time I actually saw the game was PewDiePie crying. Because uh, he was the only guy I watched back then. Uh, PewDiePie crying to the end scene, which I'm not going to go into. Everyone go out and play it. It's fucking amazing. Um, but it really did became known as the game that made people cry. And I, I, that's an okay tag for it to have. No, I mean, that's very powerful, though. It's very powerful. Mass- not- didn't Mass Effect Andromeda have that same tag tagline? <laughs> I think so, yeah. It made it was more like crying battery acid or something like that. Um, but it also led to a sort of mini resurgence of the adventure game genre. Uh, Life is Strange came out after this. It was also released episodically. Uh, Broken Age had its huge Kickstarter. And you got other adventure games coming out. Like In the context of games at the time, adventure games weren't a business. But afterwards, they really were and became yeah. way more popular. So... Again, what happens when Telltale has success? This is their biggest selling game ever, winning loads of Game of the Year awards. What do Telltale do? They go and buy even more licenses <laughs> for IPs. So you'll see a trend emerging now, if you haven't already. So I'm just going to quickly go through them. Um, the Wolf Among Us, based on the Fable comic series, 2013. Game of Thrones, 2014. Tales from the Borderlands, 2014. Minecraft Story Mode 2015, Batman 2016, Guardians of the Galaxy 2017. And not mentioned are three more seasons of The Walking Dead, two seasons of Batman and Game of Thrones, other little bits and pieces. They, they were busy. They became a factory over those years. 
um, which again we'll get into later. But you can see they had a huge output of games. The games had varying degrees of success. The ones I mentioned, uh, The Wolf Among Us and Borderlands, were among some of their most critically acclaimed, and they sold fairly well too. Um, the Wolf Among Us especially got a sort of cult following, and for anyone who hasn't seen it or played it, check out Tales from the Borderlands. Genuine, genuinely one of the funniest games I've ever seen, and fantastic writing, and weirdly a really cool uh, soundtrack with like tracks from like contemporary artists and stuff. Like there's like a James Blake song on it and stuff like that. It's very cool. <laughs> it's got its own vibe. That's cool. So some quality in there, but the sales began to drop steadily as the series progressed. Their high point was definitely The Walking Dead, but they began to really plummet over the years at a steady rate. 2016's Batman game, which is a huge franchise to make something for, uh, was one of their biggest flops, actually. So by 2017, sales were down and the studio was in a constant state of crunch. To get out this many games, like more than one game a year for huge franchises and release them episodically, it required a lot of crunch. Crunch is the term used for the long hours of overtime that usually come at the end of a game's development cycle. So recently we heard infamously that people were working 100-hour weeks at Rockstar Games. So mm. it's a lot more mm. of an issue now than it was. It, would, it used to be one of those things that we just w- w- went unsaid and we were just like, okay, we know they have to work really hard at the end of a game. It wasn't cool. But apparently in Telltale, there was an almost constant state of this because their game engine was so fucked and they had so many games to get out. Their employees said they were just constantly having to do overtime, constantly having to work weekends. Um, that's going to wear people down. So in 2017, the studio started a major restructuring, but continued developing games. And very importantly, even though the sales were down and their employees were fucking tired, they continued making deals for future IP. They actually made a deal with Netflix to make a Stranger Things video Ew. game that never saw the light of day. Maybe it'll be released in another form. Who knows? They continued buying licenses and doing this even when sales were down. They only knew one way of doing things, basically. So, in September 21st, 2018, 90% of the studio's employees were laid off, and a core team of 25 people were kept on to fulfill any prior obligations, any games that were being made at that time. By September 24th, these remaining employees were given just 30 minutes to get into the office, get their items and get out, and were immediately terminated from the company. That's really rough. Like man, minutes. it it was just it was just like slitting their throat. Yeah, basically, it was the they didn't treat the employees very well towards the end. Telltale's previous games were removed from online retailers, and season four, The Walking Dead, which was halfway through development and two episodes had been released, stalled. Despite some last-minute negotiations for further investment, the studio had closed. So very sad. Got sort of fucked at the end there. So why did this happen? It's clear that after the success of The Walking Dead and throughout, even throughout their whole life, Telltale bit off more they can chew and they stuck to the same formula. We're seeing this over and over again, the constant tread of following up any success with buying more and bigger licenses to work on. They kept using the same game mechanics and just plastering them in a different world on a different IP and eventually that's going to get stale. They didn't invest any resources in developing any new IP. 
So each time they made a game, they were tied to the framework of each franchise they were working for. So you can see this very well in like stuff like Game of Thrones, which the two franchises, like Telltale and Game of Thrones by themselves are great, but they don't marry together very well. Telltale's style of writing does not f- suit the Game of Thrones style at all, which <laughs> has more of a like classic, you know, wordplay-ish thing going on, whereas Telltale's is like pretty simple writing, but like getting down to a core of a character and like lots of humor and stuff like that. Mm. The two of them did not suit each other at all. And those games were just boring. Do you mind if I ask, how, how many of the Telltale games have you played? Is there any, like, would there be more you haven't or more you have played? Uh, more I haven't because they have a load of, like, just, like, I'm not interested in playing the Back to the Future game and stuff like that. That looks pretty good, actually. I probably, I played more of their wa- post-Walking Dead games. That's, yeah, no, I think that would probably be true for, of all three of us, wouldn't it? I'd say so, yeah. I know I have as well. I've played a few before. I, I did play the Monkey Island ones, and I think I played mm. one of the Sam and Maxes for a bit. Oh, I think uh, I did play a little bit of the Monkey Island at yours, actually. Yeah, I yeah, played. Yeah. Um, my I loved how for how bad it was. I know it sold well, but Jurassic Park the game was god awful. Like, have you ever <laughs> seen? There's like a load of videos online for the uh, intentional deaths in uh, Jurassic Park. Like oh, yeah. really, really hilarious deaths. Like they weren't supposed oh. to be as funny as they were, but if you miss a button prompt, like you just get run over by a truck, and it's just really. It's like, it's almost perfect comic timing. You'd swear it's intentional. But yeah, for whatever reason, it was, yeah. But anyway, I think sorry, I did see that, yeah. Yeah, I guess they had lots of like funny fail states and stuff like that. That's that's mm. sort of a common thread with adventure games going back anyway. There was always like really hilarious ways to die in like those old Sierra games and Discworld yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, Game of Thrones really didn't work. Putting them in like this... They basically put them in a straitjacket every time they made a game because they could only be in the world and use the characters of whatever franchise they're developing for. And mm. that meant the developers never got to express themselves. They're working crazy long hours and like it's less than ideal working conditions. Um, on top of that, on top of the crunch, they had managers insisting that they stay in the telltale formula. Like they can't color outside the lines at all. I, there were some leaks once the studio had closed saying that managers had like a checklist of things that needed to go in their game and sort of a, a telltale Bible that they had to ad- adhere to, which is, you know, it's it's cool having a framework, but not for every one of your games and not to mm. the such a repetitive nature. Well, to give the company credit now, like most of the games that I like, I know it is repetitive. Like the reason I didn't buy a lot or go into a lot of Telltale games was like perfect example of this would actually be um, the Batman games, right? Now, everybody loves Batman. That's a really safe franchise to invest into because fucking everybody loves Batman. Who wouldn't buy that? But Mm. I didn't buy that. And the reason I didn't was because if I'm going to buy a Batman game on a PlayStation, I'm going to get Arkham City or Arkham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because like there's a better option out there. Now, I actually got that for free on like a different account. And I played it and it's a really, really good game. It's just a bad mm. decision to go for that particular formula because there's a better option out there. And for people who are like having to go for one or the other, like, you know, it's just not a good fit. Like you said, it's not a good fit at all. I feel like the same is probably true with the Guardians of the Galaxy ones as well. Like, yeah. like you know, the way that was like an interesting gamble in like the film universe that people kind of went for because they wanted to see how it all paid off in the end. And it was sort of new in the context of those Marvel films as well. Yeah. 
but I don't think it worked here because I still I don't even think like a triple A Guardians against Guardians of the Galaxy game would work because even though it worked really well as a film, I still don't think people are quite invested enough that they go out and get any random old thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's pretty much tied into those characters rather than the world. Yeah. I'd say. Because they constrained their developers, they were making the same type of game, no matter what franchise they were making it for. It was always the same type of game. Do you think like they almost flooded the market themselves? They 100% yeah. did. And there wasn't, there was a lot of quality towards the end. I'm not going to say there wasn't, but there wasn't an increase in quality. Mm. And their high watermark was The Walking Dead. Like they, yeah. they, they went in interesting other directions. Tales of the Borderland is a lot more humor based and that's great. But the they, style of gameplay is the same. Style of gameplay is the exact same. And the, mm. one of the most frustrating things is that some people who left Telltale around the wa- after The Walking Dead time went on to make some fantastic games. Sean Vanaman and Jake Rodkin, who uh, were writers and developers on The Walking Dead Season 1 and a big part of their success, went, left the company and went to form uh, Campo Santo, who made Firewatch. Yeah, brilliant. And three other former devs of Telltale went on to make the game Oxenfree. So wow. you can see that these these two examples are very f- like successful and critically acclaimed narrative-based games, but you would never say they're in the Telltale formula. You'd never say, mm. oh, they, they're copying that style. So they obviously had the talented, like the enough talented developers that they could make games in a narrative character and humor-based way but without like just ramming the same sort of mechanics down your throat. And it's such a shame that they did constrain themselves the way they did because obviously it, it, it really does work if you let people run with their own ideas sometimes. And you can't just have a formula the whole time. I guess because they were just so overwhelmed with how many, like, how many games they had to get out each year, they were like, let's just go with what works. Of course, you know? and you can understand that, but that, that's their fault for buying no, up totally. these licenses. Like yeah. I remember when they revealed the... Batman games. I think it was at like the Game Awards or something like that. And I was like, oh, cool, they're making a Batman game. But then when in the same awards show, they revealed, oh, they're making a Game of Thrones game. And then the next awards, it was, we're making a Guardians of the Galaxy game. It's like, how many IPs are you part of? Like, how many licenses did you buy? But what happened over a while is players got bored with the copy and paste nature of their mechanics. It seemed like the same shit again, but with like Batman or Rocket Raccoon. Different skin on it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And it's not like the graphics made a huge leap forward. They got a little prettier, but like it was it was the same game engine throughout their whole run, basically. Yeah. Um the game mechanics didn't evolve, the writing was still excellent, but it just didn't move forward um in other ways. The Batman games actually had some cool ideas in them, despite being like a huge commercial failure. They had more of a focus on Bruce Wayne than Batman, which was sort of cool. And that was, was really some, like, good. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, that was. It, it actually like made him at least a bit interesting. They had an interesting take on Joker, especially in the second season, um, which I won't get into because it sort of spoils it. But it was for uh, a character who says overdone as Joker. It was sort of cool to see something a little bit new with him. But the public's uh, goodwill started to go downhill pretty quickly. These games are also notorious for having loads of bugs on release, despite the fact that they're not technically demanding at all. And the initial push that they got from YouTube pretty much dried up. Like it used to be, oh yeah, season two of The Walking Dead is out. Every YouTuber is going to have a video on it. Mm -hmm. It's going to get so much airtime. People are going to see so much of it. But that dried up by 2016. 
So this all combined to make consumers bored with the Telltale style and then sales went down and that's when they had to start making cuts. Going back to Double Fine, that's an interesting comparison to make because both studios were formed from the ashes of LucasArts, but they went in very different directions. While Telltale, like, just did this repetitive cycle of the same games uh, on huge franchises. Um, Double Fine, which was made by Tim Schafer, um, or founded by Tim Schafer, actually diversified their output and made a whole load of different games. They didn't start by making adventure games at all. They made platformers, puzzle games, RPGs. They even made a kid's rhythm action game. So they weren't afraid of touching any genre, and it meant they didn't get pigeonholed in the same way that uh, LucasArts did. They even do, Double Fine even do this Amnesia Fortnite thing where they stop whatever game they're working on, and they let all their developers do a game jam for two weeks where they come up with new ideas and try to make a small game in two weeks. And I think some mm. of their... Like, uh, Stacking was one of their games where you can, like, jump oh, yeah. into oh, Russian Doll yeah. versions mm-hmm. of other people. I that think, did all right, actually. I think that came from an Amnesia Fortnite, actually, or some idea that somebody had in there. But it seems like a way better place to work where your creativity is rewarded and you get to express yourself a bit more. This seems the way you should make it. Like, you should... A formula is great and does work sometimes, as in, you know, Platinum Games use the formula a lot of the time. A lot of their games are similar in a way, but they don't constrain themselves to the same way. Yeah. You need to let people express themselves, and that's how good art can be made. There's no harm having a house style, but there is a line, and Telltale bought a house on the wrong side of that line. <laughs> they started as a developer adding a new spin to an old genre, but they ended up becoming like their own worst enemy, really. Um, just a factory that made barely interactive cartoons. It's a shame because the high points were good, but... You can you can see why it happened. And even me, as someone who was a big fan of their games for a long time, I wasn't buying the Batman games. I wasn't buying... Mm. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan, and I never bought the second season. Mm. I, like, I just was not bothered. Like, two of my favorite things coming together, and it was just a complete disappointment. Small silver lining at the end. Possible bright note to end on. LCG Entertainment, uh, late last year, acquired... Telltale's assets and re-release Telltale's back catalogue online so you can buy Batman and all their old games again and The Wolf Among Us 2 was announced at the 2019 Game Awards so they're back from the dead to a certain extent whether they've learned from past mistakes who knows but hopefully we'll get some more good stuff from them in the future so they've sorry just to uh, on that note so have they actually they bought the assets but so have they re like vitalized the studio to a certain extent, some uh-huh. uh, former developers were brought on in a freelance role and a lot were invited back. But uh, I do think to a certain extent it's going to be telltale in name more than anything. Yeah, right. But if you think about it from the beginning of the studio, a lot of the, like, the main writers on The Walking Dead went on to make Firewatch. Like other developers left to make other games. It's That's sort of the nature of studios. And I'm sure it'll come up with both of you guys as well is that a lot of the time the heart and soul of a studio leaves sometimes yeah, true. you know yeah, happens a lot um there's still you know this they made a metal gear solid game after kojima left konami you know like it <laughs> it it sometimes happens in the industry but it doesn't mean that it's the same sort of creative spark yeah that made yeah. it initially work but they are back to a certain extent i guess we'll see how the i get their big test will be the wolf among us too because that mm. was a sequel a lot of people were really looking forward to and a front uh, a game that has like a cult following like i was saying yeah 
So mm. if they can nail that, maybe there might be a future for them. But hopefully they won't go and buy a fucking Avengers license and make an adventure game out of that. Well, I'd say since they don't have really that control now, so they're like owners who will be the ones who make those decisions. So maybe they'll kind of like just let drip drip feed a game every now and again kind of thing or something I would hope that they wouldn't have the same level of output like a, yeah. a few games every year I don't think that's going to work really mm. um, so yeah just take it slow and steady I'd, I'd say if they're if they're smart they'll see how this first game does yeah um, but also they re-release some other stuff like Batman and maybe if that got good sales they do another Batman game or something like that who knows hmm Cool. Well, thanks, Michael, for that on Telltale Games. That was pretty good. You're welcome. Um, I think we'll pretty go good. over to Steve. Yeah, we'll get C minus. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Steve, um, uh, tell us about your studio. Um, you've set the bar fairly high there, Michael. I <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going. I'm going by my own knowledge, and I watched like a five minute YouTube video for a bit refresher, but. All right, here uh, we go. No, um, nobody can say we never put the work into this. Yeah, come on. <laughs> it's this top drawer fucking podcast. Here. So, um, Michael brought us back in time all the way to 2004. I'm going to bring you even further back. Uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day has just hit the cinemas. Wow. And, yeah. And Nirvana have just released Smells Like Teen, Teen Spirits. So, what year, what year were you in, guys? Pop quiz. 1991. Indeed we are. Indeed oh, we are. when I was born. Yeah, wow. so... <laughs> that's not relevant to this podcast, Sean. Yeah, can you cut uh, out that part, editor? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, you're so, editing this. Yeah, that's all I'm putting in. <laughs> yeah. I just Copy and paste that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, prior to this year, Nintendo have been absolutely dominating the market, as you well know, because in the late 80s, they released uh, Super Mario Brothers, which... By itself, that and the Nintendo Entertainment System basically revitalized video games, home video game consoles, because they died a death, like in the early 80s. And Sega were competing with them, but doing kind of a shit job. They had their own diet Mario in the shape of Alex Kidd, who was <laughs> a bit of a loser, for being being honest now. Yeah. Um, so basically, they were fighting to keep up, but they were always playing second fiddle to Nintendo. Until the release of their biggest franchise ever. That's right. Aliens Colonial Marines. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm sure you guys know who I'm going to mention. Good old Sonic the Hedgehog. And the studio that I'm talking about specifically is the Sega Technical Institute. Now, this... What a name. That's amazing. Uh, it's it's called STI, and every time I write it down, I accidentally write STD every single time. So STD <laughs> was doing great work. Um, so basically, they weren't formed when they made Sonic the Hedgehog, right? That like the team was kind of working together, but it wasn't officially formed. They came together after the release of Sonic the Hedgehog. So the whole idea with Sonic the Hedgehog was they wanted to make a mascot to compete with Mario. That was very simply the goal of Sonic the Hedgehog. It wasn't to make a game. It, well, it was to make a game, but it wasn't to make a good game. It was to make a competitor. Very simply. Mm. Uh, working title for Sonic the Hedgehog, incidentally, is Mr. Needlemouse. Don't know if you knew that. Um, and he was pointedly supposed to have attitude, which I think he has in spades. Uh, but his personality in the first two or three games is apparently based on Bill Clinton. Uh, oh, I really? can see that. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. Tails is Monica Lewinsky. 
as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, wait, who's his wife then? Like, is that Knuckles? Uh, oh, Amy, Knuck- Amy, I suppose. Oh, yeah, because she's always in your ear and she's fucking... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, uh, no, if Mrs. Clinton is listening to this... <laughs> yeah, please don't assassinate um, us. <laughs> anyway, so after the release of the first game, they uh, basically formed the STD, STI. And so the entire goal of that studio, the entire like gospel of that studio was they wanted to make marketable franchises. They wanted to make games that they could turn into franchises. They weren't interested in standalone games. They weren't interested in new concepts. It was just about making marketable games. That was it. Mm -hmm. Marketable franchises. They did kind of terrible. (laughs) <laughs> in, ter- in terms of like uh the range of games they had because basically the only one that they had that really did well was sonic the hedgehog they also released uh comic zone don't know if you know that one. Oh yeah i do um it yeah. literally looked like a comic book didn't it yeah it was an in- yeah. interesting game but they didn't get a sequel out of it because it didn't sell well enough they also had the oh. ooze and uh kid chameleon i played all these games they're all fine but apparently they just didn't do well enough to actually make like a, a proper sequel so or a proper, uh, yeah, to turn into a franchise. So basically, they went, they did Sonic 2, and this was a collaboration between America, Sega of America, and Sega of Japan. And Sega of Japan specifically reached out to America because they were doing okay, they were doing really well in Japan, but they weren't doing well in America. So they needed, like, America's help to kind of get the whole idea of, like, what do American audiences want? And that's where the Mm -hmm. whole notion of attitude came in. So they came out with Sonic 2, and that was, you know, they upped the attitude of Sonic in there. I think his eyebrow is arched on the cover art or something like that. Wow. Um, Slow down, guys. And, yeah. <laughs> Let's give Sonic a gun. Yeah. Wait, they did do that. <laughs> that. Well, Shadow the Hedgehog, you know. But yeah, so Sonic Hedgehog 2 was a collaboration between the two studios, and that sold extremely well. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 sold amazingly well. So like that was when they knew they got their bank- bankable franchise. So they just started churning out like uh, Sonic the Hedgehog games and spin-offs. So a rake of them came out then at that point. But the significant ones that came out were Sonic the Hedgehog, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, Sonic Spinball, Sonic the Hedgehog 3, and Sonic and Knuckles, because they were the big sellers. They were the ones Actually, that really, Actually, I think it's pronounced uh, Sonic and Knuckles. Get, um, get it right, Steve. Do your research. I thought we're not going by the Latin. Okay. <laughs> Cuckle is something else, I think, Sean. Is it? Um, <laughs> just um, wanting Steve can you not slap your leg as much <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. it's not yeah. hooting Annie we're at <laughs> anyway so the year is 1994 well it's not but in the story so Sonic and Knuckles has just released <laughs> it's kind of the first example of DLC in a way because I don't know, did you guys see Sonic and Knuckles? It was that open cartridge that you could stick Sonic Two or Sonic Three into. Yeah, it was like a, almost like a add-on to Three, wasn't it? Yeah, but you could put Sonic Two into it as well. You could play Sonic Two as Knuckles. Oh, okay, oh, that's cool. cool. Yeah, so it was really innovative. It was really good. But anyway, once this released, uh, they started talking about new uh, hardware. They wanted to bring out new uh, a new system. And this is where things turn into a mighty, mighty shitstorm for Sega. <laughs> this is where it all went to shit. So, uh, have you ever heard of the 32X? Yes. Yeah. Okay, what do you know about it? Um, wasn't it an add-on for the Sega Mega Drive? It was or it wasn't? <laughs> it was, and it, no, I said... Schrodinger's cast there. 
<laughs> what was it an add-on? Oh, um, see, this is the thing. Like, uh, I I looked this up recently, and I'm still. I think no, it wasn't. Yes, I remember now. It wasn't. But this is the thing. There was so much confusion around the 32x. Nobody knew if it was a new console or not. Yeah. Does that sound familiar mm. at all? Yeah. What does it that does. remind you of? Nobody. What knew. does that remind you of? I, <laughs> oh, the oh the 3do. No. Or the no or no what, not the 3do. Um, the Wii U. That's, no, there was that, like thank a, you, thank you, Michael. That's what I was going for. All right. <laughs> Somebody got there. I was, I was thinking of a different decade, man. I was like, okay. <laughs> but like, isn't it really interesting that that mistake was made, like first by Sega and then Nintendo repeated it so many years later? Because there's so much confusion on whether or not, like, is it a new console? Is it not? Like, it's. Yeah. But it wasn't. Yeah. Nintendo fucked themselves by calling it the Wii something. Could they thought, oh, we've so much brand recognition for the Wii. We might as well keep using that name. Yeah. But the grannies yeah. didn't know that that was a new one. We were like, oh yeah, we've already got a Wii. Why would we get another one? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, that one just has yeah. a telly in the controller. Whatever. And isn't it mad to think that? They just call it the Wii 2. They would have solved all that problem. Oh my God. Like they, yes. Honestly, like if they call it the Wii 2, like the PlayStation 2, that would have been really <laughs> easy. But they're just like, no, Wii U. That's more family I don't friendly. E- I don't even get what the U is about though. Like why call uh, it Wii U? It makes no sense. This, this rhymes, is it like... Uh, it was something like Rhymes that. Anyway. Itself. <laughs> you. <laughs> so what's the 32X? So the 32X was the new console that came after the Sega Genesis. but like Or Mega was, Drive. Or, or Mega oh, yeah. Drive if you're in Europe, whichever. Um, but it did terribly. It didn't do well at all. So like um, America were really dead focused on the 32X. But Japan were pushing for their new console that they were developing, the Sega Saturn. Now, America were putting all their efforts into games for uh, the 32X, um, but like Japan were like, push us. No, we want you to release games for the Saturn. Come on, come on, come on. And they were getting no support. So the two stu- the studio itself was divided by its two regions, and they were not getting on well here at all. So eventually, uh, Japan sent them the hardware the, for the Sega Saturn. And like this is for developers' hardware. And they were like, wow, okay, this is really impressive. And finally, they got them on board. And then they were under, like, eventually they were given a lot of pressure to make a new Sonic the Hedgehog game. Since we need a killer app for the Sega Saturn, we need you to start making a game. Uh, Have you guys heard of a game called Sonic Extreme? (laughs) No, I can't say I have. So Sonic Extreme is, uh, you can kind of say it's the nail in the coffin for Sonic the Hedgehog in general. Because it was kind of, it marked the decline. From here on in, things are going badly. It was a cancelled game, Mm. it never got released. But the development cycle went on for like the guts of like five years and it was never released. It was an absolute nightmare. So long story short, um, well, I won't make it too short, but anyway. <laughs> long so, story, less long. <laughs> the STI were given like responsibility of Sonic Extreme and they said, okay, so we want to make this brand new, like fully 3D Sonic the Hedgehog game. We want something fully 3D. Get this out there. So, All right, we'll start people working on it. So the chief game designer was a Chris Sen and he had, he brought in like a bunch of people, like a bunch of like random newbies So before they'd had like a set team, but because they were working on such a big project, they brought on a bunch of newbies, but they were kind of a nightmare to work with because each department didn't get on well with each other. So like the animation department, like were kind of given free reign by its manager, design this, this, and this, whereas the programmers were like, okay, do this, this, and this. And the managers weren't syncing up together, so they weren't collaborating well. So the whole thing was a gigantic mess. It was a management nightmare. It was just, it just completely fell apart. 
at the first, oh, sorry, now I can't remember if it was either the first or the second E3 took place around, it was either 1995 or 1996. Haven't got my facts here well here at all. Not <laughs> like fine. Michael. Nobody cares. But anyway, <laughs> At an E3, uh, Sony announced the PlayStation 1 and Sega announced the Sega Saturn. Now, yeah. Sega were up first and they were talking about the Sega Saturn and all the things it could do, but they ended it on a bad note because they mentioned the price, which was $399. Ooh. Do, I, do you remember now the, the next thing oh, that happened was very shit. famous? Okay. You know what it is, don't I, you? I don't want to, well, I don't want to spoil it, but did he... Yeah, you tell it. Yeah. <laughs> So the pres- Sony went up on stage and they just said one thing into the microphone and it was a figure and it was two ninety nine and then he walked off the stage. <laughs> and that was yeah, all he needed. Remember that. So, so I remember good. seeing what? that clip of that and it's such a like mic drop. He feels like the biggest G in the world, man. He's like, yeah, <laughs> come at me. You know, I don't care. So like, from here on, like, it was just a disaster, a disaster after disaster after disaster. They had a bunch of cowboy programmers working for um, the STI. Cowboy programmers, like these guys who kind of, they're really skilled, but they don't work well in a team. So, like, there was one guy in particular, like, I think he was, like, one of the lead programmers, but he basically did all his programming on a PC instead of the Sega Saturn hardware. So when it was finally time to convert it, like it all got completely scrambled when he converted it over or when it was converted over. So it was almost unusable. It's like going from open office to Word. <laughs> yeah. So um, they also had this <laughs> another really good programmer brought on called Christina Coffin. Now she was a real, like she was kind of brought in like almost fresh out of college, but she was a genius programmer and she was working with them as well. She was doing great work. When... Uh, Sega of Japan came to America to talk to STI Studio. They were kind of getting like, you know, an update on how things were going with Sonic Extreme. And basically Sega had three demos to show them because there was three games in development. It was supposed to be one game, but they had three because like they were all working on separate stuff. So essentially they had three separate levels and they had no way to sync them up. So the first one was the one that like, uh, the ca- uh, it was what the main team was working on. And it was kind of terrible. If you ever, if you look up like footage of Sonic Extreme, it's the stuff that comes up there. That was the demo. It's kind of cylindrical in nature. It's, um, how would you describe? Yeah. It wasn't like the bonus levels from, uh, Sonic 2, was it? Where it's like, uh, you're racing down a thing. No, so like, it's kind of like you could walk. It's a bit, it was a little bit like Crash Bandicoot in a way, except you know the way Crash Bandicoot, it's kind of, you walk from like the back of the screen and you're walking forwards for the most part. Yes, Sonic yeah. was kind of the same, but you're walking from the left to the right, but you could also walk forward and backwards a little bit as well. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. The quirk was that you could also kind of rotate the screen, so like he could walk up walls and stuff. I'm not sure how mm. this was going to pan out, but that was kind of their big selling point. Anyway, they showed this to the uh, Sega of Japan, and they hated it. Absolutely <laughs> hated it. The second demo they showed was from Christina Coffin, and she showed what basically looks like the dna of sonic adventure like they hmm. sh- she showed a she showed a boss fight and i looked up footage of this it looks really really good like it's a really good looking game and basically sega japan after they saw that they stood up and said make the entire game like that they never even looked at the th- they never even looked at the third demo <laughs> which was uh, your man wanted to go to lunch like he was like fuck it that'll do <laughs> yeah that was it like exactly so basically they kept working on like they took her programming and said okay we're gonna do it this way 
Uh, around this time, there was a big shakeup in STI, and there was a new guy who was brought on, Bernie Stoller. He was like the new uh, president of STI. Now, when he came on, he fired a fuck ton of people, like an absolute fuck ton. But he was very supportive of the Sonic team. And when the Sonic team approached him, they said, we have a way to make this game. And we want to use the, do you know the game Nights into Dreams? Yeah, the sort of flying around purple guy. Yeah, so that was released recently. And they, so that was released and they said, if we can get the engine for that, we can like, we can get this game out in a year. Like, we'll, it's no problem. We just, we need the engine for that. And Sega of Japan have it. Can you get it for us? It's like, yeah, no problem. We can do that. Now, that would have been fine. And like, it would have gone very smoothly, except Yuji Naka, who was like, he was the guy who basically created Sonic the Hedgehog. He also created Knights. He basically said, no, I don't want Sega of America to have it. So if you give it to them, I'm walking. And Sega Japan were like, wow. sorry, we can't get rid of him. He's like our guy, so you're going to have to do without it. So long story short, this entire process stagnated. And everything you were saying, Michael, about like the Telltale staff, like suffering, they were under crunch time. Mm. This was happening like 100% in like STI as well. There was your one, Christina Coffin. Like she was like one of the lead programmers on this. She moved into the STI offices <sighs> And she wow. just like lived there like for about a year and a half, like working on this game all the time. Like she mm. had a chair that was kind of like her house. <laughs> she just stayed in it the whole time. Uh, for a while, things were going well. Um, at the next E3, they said like um, they showed off a little bit of footage for it. And it was kind of like, oh, it's not too bad. But there was a lot of teasing little things like we don't want to show you everything because we've got some big surprises. But the real reason they weren't showing them everything is because they had nothing else prepared. So mm. like any the next time you hear at E3, oh, we're not going to show you everything because of this. Be a little more cynical. Of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all smoke so, and mirrors. Exactly. So long story short, like this kept going and like while they were still trying to develop this. Now, bear in mind, this is what like the Sega Saturn was riding on. Like the Sega Saturn needed mm-hmm. like this flagship thing and it had already been out for like two years. And when like while they were still making Sonic Extreme, Sega of Japan had started working on the Sega Dreamcast. So they were getting pissed with Sega of America <laughs> for still not having released this game. So... Eventually, this just completely fizzled out. Um, Chris Sen, he developed like some kind of serious health condition and he was told by his doctor, if you keep going at the pace you're going, you'll be dead within six months. So he had to step down. Christina Coffin, she developed a form of pneumonia and she was also told that she would be dead within a year if she kept working on it. So she had to step down and they were the two like leads on the game. So Coffin by name, Coffin by nature. (laughs) This is it. <laughs> I think. I hope if, she's still yeah. alive. <laughs> <laughs> she is, and I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, um, basically, with the two of those stepping down, that effectually shut down the entire like uh, company because, like, the teams within the company, like the graphics department, the animation department, the um, uh, program department, music department, none of them got on. Um, actually, mm-hmm. another fun, fun fact about this game, actually, the creative writing team, at one point they had eight different, eight separate storylines running for Sonic Extreme, like what was happening in the narrative. So- Sonic, guys, this is a message to every Sonic developer. It does not need a storyline. <laughs> Just put him on a level. He's running. Yeah, I get it. There's a fox there as well. Cool. No one cares. Yeah. They were going to change the fox, actually, into a dung beetle, but sure, whichever. 
in effect, uh, STD uh, was ST done by the time <laughs> by the time they stepped down, it was all Brilliant. over. Like they basically absorbed the rest of the team member members back into like Sega of America, and um, a couple of them went back to Sega Japan, and it was completely dissolved, and the game was never released. And basically, after this, you can see the decline of Sonic the Hedgehog after this because this is the point when it was trying to go into 3D. And like the next game they released was Sonic Adventure, which um, a lot of the DNA of Christina Coffin's work was in that. You can definitely see it in a couple. There's one boss, I think it's the first boss in particular, looks almost exactly like the demo that she had. Maybe a little bit. Is that better. the one uh, going down the hill? Is that the no, first boss? No, that's Sonic Adventure 2. Oh, I've got okay. a weakness for bad Sonic games, so I know all <laughs> these very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so that got dissolved. And basically, Sonic of America, they decided, okay, now we're just going to make like son like the kind of the mantra for it like making franchise uh marketable games that kind of got absorbed into sonic america as well so that was kind of their main go-to for a while until they stopped making hardware and then they got a bit more creative again but mm. as you can see sonic the hedgehog died a death at that point because sonic extreme killed them all like really really badly christina coffin she went on to form her own studio it was called it's called light and dark arts and it only was formed last year believe it or not Oh, I don't know what she, uh, um, she was doing. Oh, she was with another studio before that. I think she was with, um, oh God, she was with someone like Ninja Theory. No, Team Ninja. She was Team with Ninja. someone like, okay. no, actually she was at Konami. Sorry, she left and she went to Konami after that. And mm. it was only last year she went to form her own studio. They haven't announced any games yet because they were only recently formed. So I'm looking forward to that. And you'll be happy to know that Chris Sen, he came back and he got a chance to make another Sonic game. And it was Sonic Boom, the best wow. Sonic game ever yeah. made. Every, everyone says that. It's like unanimous. There's no argument. The best Sonic game. One of the best pieces of art ever made, really. Oh, best piece of ass ever made. <laughs> Sorry, I misspoke. So yeah. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, that is um, the story of STI. Were you enthralled? In- incredibly, much. yeah. I was on the edge of my seat throughout. Com- but that, comments... That, that is crazy that there was so much infighting. And I, I did know a little bit about the fact that Japan and America didn't get on and were sort of on different tracks. But I didn't realize the team itself had like fucking three different versions of the same game. That's like crazy yeah. disorganized. Yeah, the management of the game was just completely awful. Like just re- the worst I've ever seen like in anything. But anyway. I was just going to say it's a good take on what we're doing here because... It's like different from myself and Michael's studios as it's like part of a bigger company, like, and it's almost mm. internal issues led to its demise, you know, um, yeah. which is pretty cool. It's not even like it wasn't lack of sales or, you know, the changing no. of the times or mm. anything like that. It was just they shot themselves in the foot, really, because they just took too long and they had too many cooks, it seems like. So they could have released something. Like, even if they released a half-baked Sonic game, it would still would have been better than what happened. Well, see, the thing is, they actually, they were releasing stuff at the time. Remember the 32X? That released the game as well. Uh, Knuckles Chaotix. Did you ever play that game? No, I know the name, though, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't sell very well because it was kind of a spin-off. And they they released um, Sonic 3D also on the 32X, and they ported it over to the Sega Saturn when like it wasn't doing well. But because it was still like seen as like it was 
it'd be like releasing it's like when they released the last of us on uh ps4 or like yeah or, yeah or like you know like it's 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 cool and all but like it's still last it's gen as well you know you release yeah it's not so a like, new thing it's it doesn't really like i hate when like remasters like that get like a game of the year award i'm sorry like, that's not this year's game yeah that's just a copy and paste yeah well there's probably there's definitely more to it than that it's just um it's interesting one thing like and i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this like with this in particular it's interesting how like the transition into a new generation of consoles can really mess something up um mm. also like it's it's funny because like you kind of you know when you think in your head like uh say someone was to say to you think of a great company now list their consoles and like you always think of the really successful ones like i think we could all list like nintendo's consoles because they're all pretty successful up to the wii u and then it kind of mm. got a bit shitty but like there's all these like random like half consoles and stuff like i mean do you think anyone's gonna list like say if someone say list the sony consoles do you think they're gonna list like the playstation 4 pro the kind of half one or but that's that's sort of different because it uh, i don't think they ever expected that to sell buckets loads but there is we're in a weird place in the market now where like a slight iteration they just needed to get like a a premium version of the ps4 out and the xbox mm. did the same as well like i think it would be lumped in with the ps4 though because if you if you look at like sony's like sale figures they include the ps4 pro in the ps4 sales and stuff Mm. Ah, and it it sort of reminds me of like just upgrades of consoles yeah from the past and stuff like that like i think wasn't there a upgrade for the genesis to add a cd drive or something like that Mm. back in the day sega cd yeah Sega CD, so that's um, what I was thinking of earlier. Yeah, that that um, was actually that that is the thirty two X. Oh, right. oh okay, okay. Yeah, same yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, that's so weird though. Even that concept, like, what were Sega doing? Let's. So weird, why yeah. wouldn't you release? I guess nowadays we sort of have an expectation about how the console market's going to go, but back then it was a bit of the wild west, and it's like anything could be made. I think I think it was more back then is that like so many people had the Sega Mega Drive or the Genesis, and they were like well, we want to reach, you know, people might be a bit more reluctant to buy a whole new console. Yeah, and they can We can just sell them an add-on and keep making games for that same system. Mm. And and even all the development kits, like, they might just need, like, something a little extra. Tweaked. They would need a whole new development kit, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's trying to get, it's again, going back to the Wii U thing, it's trying to guess what consumers would want. Yeah. And what Nintendo should have done then is either release Wii 2 and call it Wii 2 or you know, make an add-on for the Wii and mm-hmm. then bide their time until... They've really done well with the Switch, actually, because that sort of... is all, It almost seems like what they wanted the Wii U to be. Yeah, definitely. Way. Like, they've they've learned a lot from the Wii U. To like, yeah, that was almost like a stepping stone to making the Switch, mm. you know? And as well with um, talking about, like, hardware iterations, like, the Switch um, and the Switch Lite are both in the same family. And it's mm. the same with like the 3DS, the 2DS. That's all the same family. So you wouldn't go naming every 3DS that came out. Like, I guess we had lighter versions of the PlayStation consoles going forward as well. And like, yeah. The PS, yeah. remember there was the PS1, which had ONE after it. Rather that looked, than the, oh, yeah. That was yeah. really cool. I like that. Yeah, that, I, actually, it was like one of the better looking ones. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. Just to, sorry, just to rectify a mistake I said there, just to, this is going to show you how confusing it all is. The 32X is not the Sega CD. That was a separate thing as well. Yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> that was so fucked at that or, time. Was the Sega CD for the Genesis as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That's weird. But you could add, like, I think you could add the 32X onto the Sega Genesis as well as the Sega CD. See, this is how confusing <laughs> it is. Like, it's so confusing. <laughs> That's brilliant. 
It's like, like even it's, as a, I remember thinking of this like kind of recently before I even like was planning for this podcast, and it's like, what was the Sega like in the nineties? <laughs> it was all it was all over the place. It was like, a mess. They had that, before like the Mega Drive or Genesis, they had one before it as well. Like the just the Sega thing. I don't know what it was like. It was the Sega was York. That, yeah, <laughs> it was. They, had, was they mad, made like. they made a lot of bad decisions in the nineties. Definitely. Hey guys, everyone listening, go see the Sonic movie out now and yeah. <laughs> yeah. No more bad decisions from Sega. Anyway, by the time this podcast comes out, it's probably not going to be in the Sega. <laughs> It'll be the sequel of one every Oscar. <laughs> um, okay. So that was great, Steve. Thank you very much. But we'll yeah. move on now, and Sean's going to give us the final, um, what I like to call countdown. <laughs> and now Sean is going to give us another game studio that uh, died a premature death. Um. Okay. So, thanks, Michael. Um, the game studio I'm going to talk about. Well, so you know what? I'm going to keep with the trend that you two have started. So. I'm going to take you back. <laughs> so Michael, We're in a fucking so, time machine here. So we? Michael went to 2004. Uh, Steve went to 91. So I'm going to go somewhere in the middle. Okay. So this back year. Back to the future. <laughs> yeah. This year, <laughs> Titanic became the first film to gross $1 billion. 1997. No, actually. <gasps> um, no. The good, the good Friday Agreement was signed in Northern Ireland. Nine. Uh, no, sorry, Steve said eight, and I said no to him, didn't I? Yeah, it's, it's 1998. <laughs> get your facts right, Sean. I'm sorry, Steve, I'm sorry. Sean yeah. had to get a Good Friday agreement I, I had to get that out. I knew you would somehow, I just wasn't sure where. Yeah. So, the, the year is 1998, um, and the studio I'm going to talk about is Pandemic Studios. Uh, so Pandemic was founded in 1998 by two former Activision employees, Josh Josh Resnick and Andrew Goldman. Uh, Josh and Andrew, along with a handful of employees who they took with them, had worked on previous Activision titles, Battlezone and Dark Reign. So those are some generic game titles, right? They are. There. They, Holy are shit. they are generic, but they were established IPs at the time. Apparently, I've okay. I've never played either of them. I have heard of Battlezone before, though. Is Battlezone the one with the tanks? Um, that's a newer but, game. Oh no! I, I know it's it, like a there was oh, a game oh, yeah, like in the eighties yeah. or something. Uh, yeah, maybe it is then. I, I'm not 100% sure. Let me, I'll, you keep going, I'll have a look at I this. know there's like a recent Battlezone tank game as well. But, it's um, VR, isn't it? Uh, possibly, possibly. Um, but anyway, interestingly, Pandemic's founders actually kept a very good relationship with their former employer. So much so that Activision helped them formally establish themselves as an independent studio by giving them an equity investment of 10 million or something. Um, in return, Pandemic agreed to develop at least five games for Activision. Um, and among these would include, unsurprisingly, Battlezone 2 and Dark Reign 2 <laughs> as their first two games. So because which bo- <laughs> with both of these being established IPs, they gained a fair amount of commercial success, uh, but not as much as their predecessors. Um, um, sorry, just to jump in, Battlezone 2... I, I'm not sure, Steve, you could be right about that. It's a tank game, but the second one uh, looks like a sci-fi first-person shooter, so... Maybe they were just like, nobody cares what the sequel's going to be like. Maybe, Let's make yeah. whatever we want. Who knows? Um, my bad. Fuck. I should have researched that. No, no, it's <laughs> cool. It's cool. Um, yeah, I'm quickly just going to talk about some games that the, the studio made yeah, during its yeah. entire lifetime. Um, so they made quite a few. I'm just going to name some of the notable ones here. 
Uh, in 2004, Full Spectrum Warrior was oh, released shit. by the studio. Cool, yeah. Um, published by THQ. Um, two versions of the game were actually created because the studio was contracted by the US military to create um, a type of training simulation mm. for its soldiers. Oh, nice. Um, so, but basically they needed to, It was they wanted to release it on consoles and PlayStation wouldn't allow them to because of... Uh, just their kind of terms and conditions on using the product for like military purposes. Yeah. Um, Xbox would allow them to, but they said they had to release the game commercially as well as using it as a training simulator. So the studio developed two different versions and the controversy actually arose upon its release with the US military saying they had been shortchanged by the studio <laughs> as the simulation wasn't realistic enough and they weren't using it. So there was actually only one copy of the game sold to the public that included the training simulation on it, but you needed a like a, a secret code basically to get like, into that point. Do you mean literally one copy? As no, in one no. Vi- no, no, no. I mean, there was like one version, version. of the game was released, but oh, to okay. access the training simulator, you needed like a code mm. to enter into the game. But yeah, basically, I, I think if Full Spectrum Warrior got like um, pretty good reception, yeah. um, it was like a squad-based simulation military game mm. uh, for the time on consoles was pretty unique as well. Definitely, yeah. Next, um, we have Star Wars Battlefront 1 and 2, or the original ah. games, which were made by Pandemic. Um, mm. I have I don't have any experience with these or the remakes by Dice, but basically it was a game based games based in the Star Wars uh, on the Star Wars franchise, and they were hugely successful for the company. They pitted four different factions from the Star Wars universe universe against each other in the single player campaign, and then in the multiplayer allowed players to assume these roles and battle it out in locations from the film series. And levels some also fanboys in- out there who are absolutely infuriated by your dull monotone when describing Star Wars <laughs> yeah. Battlefront. You can tell you don't like, give a shit about Star Wars. Excited? No, I mean, yeah, I, I'm just reading the script here, Steve, if I'm honest. But, um, no, it, it's it's pretty cool. Idea. <laughs> no, man, fuck Battlefront. I'll, no, I'll, no, no, I'll take the L. I'll take the L. Fuck Star Wars. Anyone who likes Star Wars, fuck you. <laughs> fuck Battlefront. The original, the new no, ones okay, are no, shit. Okay, the originals were worse. If I can just like say, <laughs> I, yes. If I can, if I can just say like, yeah, it was pretty for the time. Shit. Like on PC, it had sixty-four player, up to sixty-four players in vehicle combat as well, which was pretty like wow, two thousand four. You know, I'm in first year in school, and it's like <laughs> yeah. this is deadly. Everyone was in first year in school. Um, um, no, it is like in fairness, they were. Those games have a lot of love still. Yeah. Some people prefer them to the newer dice ones. So like yeah. they yeah. obviously did something right. But I have to say, that's a crazy progression for the studio to make already. They jumped from a fucking military training exercise to a Star Wars multiplayer game. That's a crazy trajectory already. It's gonna it's gonna get a bit crazier. <laughs> Only slightly. Okay. But, uh, did they do cooking so- mama? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the next uh, franchise the game created was Destroy All Humans 1 and 2. Oh, wow. Um, in okay. 2005 and 2006, respectively. Uh, this game was received with great critical and commercial success, while the latter, number, the, the sequel, wasn't received as well. Um, a remake of the original is actually coming out in 2020 mm. from Black Forest Games and published by THQ, which is pretty interesting. Again, a game I didn't play, but I do remember when the first one came out and it did get pretty rave reviews. Basically the premise is you're an alien invading 
Earth and you have to destroy all humans. Yeah. Um, fun games. I, I played a bit of the first one, actually. It's mm. fun. Mm. Very good. The next uh, franchise I have here on my list is um, probably the one that the studio is most associated with and the one I have personally played the most, which is Mercenaries 1 and 2, mm. released in 2005 and 2008, respectively. This game kind of involved the GTA style of gameplay, but set in a war zone where the player, a mercenary, takes jobs for a commission from various factions dotted around the map. Uh, the first game was set in a fictional North Korea, and the game actually had been banned in South Korea for two years upon its release because the, the country just didn't like the depiction of a war zone in their country, Man, basically. I forgot that it was North Korea. Man, you would North not Korea. do that nowadays. Yeah, no, you definitely wouldn't. <laughs> like, this was back when, like, people were like, ah, yeah, they're they're kind of crazy, but they're not really doing much at the moment. So <laughs> yeah. it's like, people weren't as, like, shaky about them. Yeah, um, this, uh, The first game did amazingly um, in sales. <laughs> I, I remember it being a big deal back then, like, because obviously a lot of GTA clones were coming out. It wasn't that long. GTA 3 was 2001, I think. So yeah. it was for, right in the middle of, like, games coming out with that formula. But they seemed to do something new with it. Yeah, for, for the time, like, 2005, the graphics as well were pretty good. The map sizes. The map sizes, mm. everything. All uh, the, the vehicle vehicles. combat, it was, mm. it was really good. Like, there was helicopters, tanks, everything in it. The sequel was set in Venezuela, actually. And follow much the same style of gameplay, um, although it did have much better graphics as it was the studio's first venture for seven-generation consoles. Oh, okay. um, the game, however, would unfortunately ship with a lot of bugs, something that um, de- definitely damaged the game's sales. At this point as well, Mercenaries 2... Actually, no, I'll get onto that in a second. Um, <laughs> foreshadowing. Ve- <laughs> yeah, foreshadowing, yeah. Um, the Venezuelan government actually hit out at the company in the media, citing the game as being an act of aggression towards the country and a plot to create a surge of support for the US to launch a real invasion on the Wait, country. So they got the US government military shitting on them and then they got the Venezuelan yeah. government shitting on them. Jesus. <laughs> and North Korea. And, and the they don't want to make any friends. The studio's past relationship with the US military didn't really help matters here. Oh, yeah. Uh, just a bit of extra trivia on mercenaries franchise the soundtrack for these games was actually partly composed by chris tilton who also scored black Uh, so very orchestral types of scores and stuff Mm. moving on we have the lord of the rings conquest changing it up again wow Uh, a game which released in 2009 to kind of a mixed reception again i didn't play this one i think it it didn't really do that well overall uh, uh, what with, sort of game was it? I'm looking at screenshots. Was it a, like a third person? I think it was like game? a third person. I played linear-ish. that one actually. Oh yeah, can like you it, tell us any more about it? Uh, it wasn't great. I remember <laughs> that much. Um, yeah, no, it was like uh, I remember like the only really major Lord of the Ring games that came out before. Remember when they released the uh, PS2 ones, the two Lo- two, the, towers the two towers and towers, yeah. yeah. It was similar to that kind of thing, but it was messier. It was a bit buggy, and it was just kind of dull it was it was like yeah like the graphics were better but overall it was a worse designed game it wasn't designed as well oh, okay that was about all i could say i only played like the first level or two so i couldn't say too much yeah i don't really remember it doing that well mm. anything. and so finally which was actually the last game of the studio and the one i probably have the most time on it was the saboteur in 2009 oh yeah um with an amazing irish accent <laughs> yes so good <laughs> um so this was kind of was cited as being the studio swan song as it was their final game before the closure 
sadly uh, though the company was closed down just before the game's release and it kind of shows the game has been cited as being unfinished and unpolished graphics wise i would have to agree but gameplay wise the game is solid in my opinion mm. much in the vein of mercenaries players took up the role of an irish car mechanic and racing driver <laughs> named sean devlin um, can i can I interject something just there now? Because I was looking yes. at the Wikipedia page and it's a hard drinking Irish race car. <laughs> Very oh, important was... detail you left out there now. <laughs> L- literally my next sentence. No, still, oh, guys. Shit, sorry. Guys, no, guys, fine, guys. Fine. That was implied when he said Irish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't forget that. <laughs> he's. Uh, I have written here... Uh, he's a drink-loving, paddy-cap-wearing Irish scoundrel. <laughs> Whose words are there? Those are your words? Yes, they are my words, actually. Okay. Pat on the back for Sean. Uh, this one, not the devil. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, basically, Sean finds himself in Paris during the invasion of Nazi Germany in World War Two, And uh, the... <laughs> Oh, yeah. As opposed to the as opposed the, to the modern day the invasion. new wave synth based invasion of Germany. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the player basically can help out various factions of the resistance to fight back against the Nazis and liberate Paris area by area. The entire game took on a monochrome filter for occupied areas, mm. which would change to full color once liberated. Uh, an interesting and refreshing mechanic at the time, which would go on to inspire other games. Most notably, and I don't know if this is right because I forgot to check it. Infamous? Uh, I've played Infamous. I can't remember if it did have a either, black and white filter. Either Infamous the, or Prototype. I can't remember which the, one. I do remember I with Infamous there was no have. like power in the, yeah, in so the it, parts of the city. So. And you had to re... Re- Unchar- yeah, generators yes. or something like that. Uncharted had that, that if you lo- the more health you lost, the more colour drained from the screen. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's kind of a link as well there. Yeah, there, there was yeah. this trend, I guess, of having these filters on games to a certain extent mm. for, like, like Steve was mentioned, health or, like, for flashbacks, I do remember, there's there's one weird, sorry, this is a complete tangent, there's one weird bit in Metal Gear Solid 3 where if you fall asleep um, oh, yeah. in a cell, you get transported to, like, a samurai mini game and it's got this, like, old grainy filter on it mm. as well. Um and like I remember that. that's De- brilliant <laughs> Deus Ex Human Revolution had like a piss filter on it the whole time that's the most yellow look, look at look at some footage of that yeah, that's the that's most true. yellow game ever yeah, made definitely it's like the, <laughs> the blue in Battlefield as well yeah that's true uh, anyway the Saboteur the Saboteur yeah so um, that's just um, a brief list of some of the games the studio created mm. Uh, from 2000 to 2004, things were on the up for Pandemic. They expanded out to Australia, setting up a development studio in Brisbane, and they moved their founding studio from Santa Monica to a high-rise building in Westwood. Um, in 2005, it was announced that Elevation Partners, a private equity investment group through one of its subsidiaries, VG Holding Corporation, would purchase and merge both Pandemic Studios and BioWare Corporation. Uh, however, both companies would retain their separate brands and identities, so it was more of a financial and managerial merger. Mm. But let's, let me just go on a small tangent about Elevation Partners for a minute, because they are an interesting company, to say the least. Uh, among its founders include Fred Anderson, formerly of Apple, John, now I don't know how to say this guy's name, but I think it's John Rickett or Rissatello. Um, but interestingly, before leaving in 2004 to co-found Elevation, he was the president and CEO, COO of none other than EA, Electronic oh, Arts. Oh, wow. Remember, so remember that name because it's <laughs> yeah. going to come back. Foreshadowing. 
But last but not least, the wild card of the founders for Elevation Partners has to be, and you're never going to believe who it is, but Bono. <laughs> yeah, at one at one stage Bono at one stage Bono owned Pandemic Studios. So that's what happened to him. Say no more, wait, Sean. Wait, 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 wait. Is that not a joke? No, this is serious. And, and no, even it gets better. The name Elevation oh my God. comes from the U2 of song course. Elevation. What? <laughs> A penny just dropped. And it's like, what are you doing, Bono? He's, oh like, he's just God. got his fingers in all these pies, man. He's just... Get your fingers out of those pies, Bono. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. Anyway, um, so yeah, Elevation bought and merged Pandemic and BioWare. Uh, business goes on as usual, right? Uh, then two years later, in 2007, it was announced that EA was to purchase VG Holding Corporation, the now parent company of Pandemic and BioWare, from Elevation Partners. Oh, and who had returned to EA as CEO earlier the same oh. year? None other than John Ricitello. Uh, so he, he had a plan, man. He knew, like, I was like, I'm going to fucking get good in the good books for EA again <laughs> by bringing him to new studios. Uh, so then in early 2009, unfortunately, EA shut down Pandemic's Brisbane studio. Um, shutdown being a divisive word here because what they actually did was much worse. They pretty much went to Brisbane and said, boy lads, we're kicking you out of the company and retaining the rights to the games you've worked on. Mm. So the company was pretty much set adrift with no publisher and no games, aside from a rumoured new Batman game they were working on, apparently, but with no funding and most likely no longer a licence to work on that franchise. It came to nothing. And why, um, and why did they shut down the Australian studio? Were sales down or...? Um, I tried, I'm not really sure, mm. but I tried, well, this was, it's probably because of what comes next, to be honest. Okay. okay. Uh, this was early 2009, remember, and basically the studio just ran out of money and had to make all its staff redundant and close up shop. I guess that was during the financial crisis as well. So. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Because next was the big blow to the company. Um, later that same year, EA went through a purge on its staff across the board, laying off a total of 1,500 staff across oh, wow. all its divisions and studios. Included in this, unfortunately, were 228 Pandemic staff, and Pandemic Studios in LA was officially closed down. The company stated this was to help recoup massive losses to the company, which was down to a decrease in public spending, most likely due to the global economic crash the year previously. Mm. Um, however, EA did absorb 35 pandemic staff into EA Los Angeles studio to help support the saboteur and an unannounced upcoming game from the studio that later turned out to be Mercs Inc., which was basically an evolution of Mercenaries 3 that the studio had been working on before it got shut down. Okay. This was actually also being worked on by Danger Close uh, Games, the studio behind the Medal of Honor reboot. Mm. But the project was later cancelled when Danger Close were shut down. So up to a dozen former pandemic developers are now employed at 343 Industries, having worked on oh, cool. games like Halo Combat Evolved and Halo 4. Mm. Um, other former employees have gone on to work for Infinity Ward, Treyarch, uh, Respawn Entertainment... Uh, Blendo Games and many others. So they've spread around to like one, so a lot of the big studios around making yeah, like, definitely. you know, big action games. At the yeah. Moment. I think some of the employees are still like of that original 35 are still employed um, in EALA and like help out on like uh, with Dice and, and, and studios mm. like that. But um, the, the company 
as I'm just about to say, actually, like Mercenaries, which is the IP the studio is probably most associated with, most certainly went on to help inspire games like Just Cause and the Far Cry sequels yeah. uh, for that play mm. style, sandbox play style. Just Cause like definitely military. had that vibe about it, yeah. Totally, yeah. And, and Just Cause, actually, I think the first one came out the year after Mercenaries 1. Mm. Um, and definitely that kind of took the flag for that type of game once Pandemic went away. Definitely, yeah. Um, in recent years, EA has rebooted the Star Wars Battlefront franchise with DICE, like we were talking about. Will we ever see another saboteur? Probably not. <laughs> but EA still holds on to all these licenses belonging to Pandemic. Mm. Uh, but THQ Nordic, who holds the license for Destroy All U- Humans, has announced a remake of the original coming out sometime in 2020. And THQ also holds licenses for previous earlier games in the company's catalog as well Mm. so yeah an unfortunate end for pandemic studios really it came down to um, a combination of the financial crash bad timing uh, ea being dickheads like they always are (laughs) i mean there was a lot of other studios caught up in those layoffs it it wasn't Mm. just pandemic i mean pandemic was one of the major ones that got shut down definitely but also, as well as that, Mercenaries 2 sales not doing so well due to, like, a buggy launch and things like that. Mm. They kind of, EA were like, right, let's look at our weak spots. And unfortunately, Pandemic were in that category. But uh, definitely, um, for its time, a much-loved studio of, like, sandbox-style shooter games. Mm, um, definitely. And definitely has left a legacy in, in the industry anyway. I guess... Um... Um, uh, thanks for that, Sean. I guess the, the sandbox games were sort of overpopulated in the market by the time yeah. Mercenaries 2 came out. Maybe with Mercenaries 1, they got in before the deluge of games. Like we're saying, it was only three years after Grand Theft Auto 3. Mm-hmm. But by Mercenaries 2, there was a lot of... Every franchise had pivoted to franchi- or to sandbox in one way or another. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's really... It, it was very much a clone, I guess you could say, in a way. Mm. Um, I suppose it being <clears throat> set in a war zone was its unique thing. And the, v- um, the, like, the, the more arcadey, over-the-top combat and stuff like that yeah. as well, I guess. Yeah, and like, story wasn't really hugely important in those games, but it did kind of try to add a little bit of a like, comedic flair to its story and things like that, mm. which was enjoyable too. It's a shame because looking at, like, I didn't realize they did so many franchises that I knew, mm. actually, before you started mentioning them. But they had, I know they did a lot of open world action games, but there's like a nice diversity to Full full Spectrum Warrior is like a fairly grounded tactical shooter. Like you're saying, there wasn't a lot of that on console. Then you have like Destroy All Humans, which has like a really irreverent tone and is over the top and is like really fun. And Saboteur had a sort of fairly serious tone and uh, historical setting and stuff like that. They did try a lot of things. It wasn't like they just kept making mercenary type games and Just Cause is a good example as well, you're saying, because that seems to do pretty well, even though it's the same game every time to a certain extent. But it's like, yeah, that kind of took the flag. So it's like the only game really that's in the same vein as it, I suppose, that's on Mm. the market. They did also make... um, like Army Men RTS, which was a strategy, you know, like the Army Men soldiers. Yeah, the green. Yeah, they made like a strategy game back in 2002 for the PlayStation 2. Mm. Um, And they made Star Wars The Clone Wars as well for PlayStation 2, another Star Wars game before Battlefront, Mm. um, which was much in the same vein as Battlefront, included vehicle combat and stuff. So yeah, I mean, they kind of tried their hand at a lot of different stuff. I mean, they only lasted 
you know, 11 years or whatever, unfortunately. Um, so who knows what they would have gone on to. It just goes to the, show that they had so many successful games. Mm. Star Wars, Destroy All Humans, um, Mercenaries. It, if, if you've one misstep, Mercenaries 2 didn't do great and Saboteur didn't do great. They're gone. They don't yeah, get a second yeah. chance with that sort of thing. Yeah, and well, I guess that's business. Yeah, well, d- like. Destroy All Humans 2 was didn't do amazing either oh, unfortunately okay. so it they, had been c- yeah going it kind of had while. been going yeah. still i mean they were enjoying like still fairly good for se- success for like i guess for an independent studio they would have been but because they were with ea you know they were looking for big numbers from them mm. they actually just one thing they were actually working on a racing game as well before they shut mm. down called no limits racing which would have been the first type of game open world no, I think it was just uh, track-based racing. Okay. But yeah. Okay, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, guys, actually, before we finish up, can I ask you one question? What was the last game you guys played? Um, the last... I have, I've been editing the Battlefield, and I'm not sure if it'll be out by the time we <laughs> yeah. do this. So, the next video after Battlefield. So, I haven't had a lot of time to play games, but the last one I played was actually... Well... I played some Tetris 99 last yeah. night. I actually got oh. my highest ever uh, finish, which was 20. Um, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I was so stressed when I got up there. Because <laughs> I was doing... So I was doing really well. And Sean was beside me. Sean lives with me. Um, <laughs> why, <Ooh. laughs> why did I include that detail? <laughs> but, Don't worry. Uh, we can edit that in post. <laughs> Sean, Sean was there in just his socks, right? And uh, <laughs> But Sean wasn't really looking at the screen. He was like looking at his phone. He wasn't paying attention. And I like just passed my best ever. And then I kept going. And I was getting like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So I just said to Sean, Hey man, look at the screen. And he looked up and he's like, oh my God. I couldn't uh, believe it. You were doing so well. But then it like, in Tetris, it, for people who don't know, it increases the speed that the blocks drop the closer <laughs> you get to the end. And I just, I don't know how anyone could get beyond where I got. But um, It gets pretty insane. That, Tetris 99 is really good. It's such a simple idea for a game. For people who don't know, it's like a battle royale version of Tetris. So you're playing against 99 other players playing Tetris and you have to be quickest to clear all your blocks. And they can add blocks to your row and stuff like that and fuck up your game. You can't be a Sick. classic. Really fun. It's free. Uh, it's free. free. It's free as well. Really fun. I guess before Class. that, the last like proper game I played was Super Hot. Also like a puzzle. Oh, I wasn't yeah. asking about puzzle. that. I was asked for the last game. So we're not going okay. into that much detail. <laughs> so okay. we're talking Sorry. about, so we're talking about like, <laughs> your, like literally the last game you played. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like last like, game like, you played, like e- even for like, like a second today, like don't okay. do the one because Sean played Tetris Night. No, 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 literally, no, 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 it's okay. I got one like literally just before Michael put on Tetris. I was playing Ape Out, mm. um, oh, which is is that good? I heard that was dude, great. Get it? It's very get cool. It. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. Yeah, if you like Hotline, you'll love it because it's basically oh. it's definitely in the same vein as Hotline. Mm. It's a top down. I guess shooter, even though you're not shooting in it. Yeah, but it's brawler. the same style. A top down brawler, maybe. Yeah. yeah, where you play as an ape who's escaped, and you basically just have to get each level. You just have to get to the end of the level without being killed because there's like security, police, zookeepers. Everyone's mm. trying to like kill you basically because you're on the loose. Oh, so I heard the soundtrack for that is it's sick. amazing. It's, it's so, so good because yeah. like it's a jazz soundtrack, and they've. <sighs> But, but like it's it's not just a jazz soundtrack. It's a, like it's a jazz drum. So it's sort of like yeah. Birdman. If anyone knows that film, 
It's just percussion and the way it matches what you're doing on screen is fucking genius. It's so... So good. So, oh, like, ties sick. into how intense it's getting. But, like, everything in the game is, like, the, the drums are synced to it. So the title screens, the drums are synced. The way you move through the level, uh, like, if you encounter an enemy, if you attack the enemy, all that kind of stuff is all... Because it's, like, free jazz, is that the word? It's sort of, yeah. Well, as far as... I'm not a connoisseur yeah. of jazz, but yeah. It's yeah. like, so it doesn't have to adhere, adhere to, like, a strict... Um, time signature i guess mm. you know so it can Class. flow about um it's really good i definitely recommend you playing it steve um and it's not I'll like have to check that out it's very hard absolutely really hard sort of um, in that hotline vibe as well it's yeah but the, yeah. the thing with hotline though is and steve you i think we talked about this before but like you know it's almost comes down to memorizing the level and where the enemies yeah. are and stuff you can't do that in eight It's out. a little randomized. It's a, it's a little procedurally generated. Oh as well. fuck! Yeah. That's so like yeah. so that's like kind of the, brilliant though. That that's brilliant. Yeah. Like, I mean, that mm. kind of made me go, "Oh fuck!" But at the same time, yes, it's it's <laughs> so good. So like the overall, each overall level has like a format, I guess. But then there's like objects throughout the level that will like restricts your movement like which direction you can go mm. and that changes every time yeah, you restart you can't the level. learn it like you a can't maze learn it, or no. something yeah. so it's it's mm. it's difficult but i definitely recommend playing it it's great so what I'm was your last game steve was it tetris 99 as well <laughs> uh, no actually no um you might be interested to hear this michael so the most recent game that i played was just before we started talking here was bioshock again oh no way oh is this the second time you've played this or yeah, so I okay. don't know. So I'm going to bring you back in time yet again. <laughs> was it like, I think it was like 2000. Because I remember, Michael, you told me to play this game. Like you insisted I play Bioshock. Around a decade ago, probably. Yeah, yeah, it was. Like it was like, it was around like the birth of PS3. Like it was one of the first couple of games I played. And like I got fairly far in it, but like I wasn't sold on it the whole way through the game. Like I got, I got up to... I have the weirdest relationship with this game because I should love it. Everything about it screams that I should love it. I love like the idea of like that old school aesthetic and vibe. Like the soundtrack is pretty cool. Yeah. And like it's kind of horror, but not quite. It's kind, it's kind it, of dark. It flirts with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to the bit. I remember the last time I played it, I got as far as, you know, the big twist which yeah. I'm not sure yeah. if we should spoil here just in case someone hasn't played it. I won't, just in case. Nah, don't. But, it, yeah, you don't need to, yeah. Yeah, but like, the thing is, easily the best twist in any game I've ever played, hands down. It's so there's, good. There's yeah. no competitor. But like, the thing is though, I got a little bit further than that and then I remember like my PS3 just got completely fucked and all the memory got wiped on it and I couldn't bring myself to go back to it. So now I'm coming mm. back and so I'm going to finish it this time. But the thing is, even though I'm appreciating it a bit more this time around, I'm still not as pushed on it. I don't think it's as good a game as everyone says it is. I, I definitely think it has some rough edges, but it's one of those games where the better parts push it over the line. As in, Rapture is such mm. a unique and interesting mm. world. Yeah. Because like if you, if you contextualize this at the time, we were getting first-person yeah. war games every second day. Like This was a fucking underground fucking i individualist uh mantras art deco city like that that was such a cool like even just that alone was cool so if you add in the twist and everything yeah. it's sort of in- it's where infinite fell down for me was that the it, it had some cool ideas but none of them could make up for its flaws yeah in terms mm. of uh like level design and story i think it's amazing mm. but 
as a shooter, a first-person shooter, which, let's be honest, is the main way you interact it's in the, the game. It's the main mechanic. It's, yeah, yeah. it's, not, mm. it's not amazing. It, like that, like the, it, it's okay, it gets by, but it could be a lot better. Mm. Like It is interesting how it mixes things up with the, the abilities the you have. The, the plasma, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I like other that, games were yeah. doing that as that kind of thing as well. It wasn't at the time. completely unique. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, but I think as far as yeah, story and setting goes, it was it was really unique and brilliant. Mm. I think what my issue with is it now. I don't know this for definite. I'm kind of thinking out loud because I've been trying to pinpoint what it is about it. I don't like, and I haven't got a good answer. Is the thing. But what I think it is, I think the gameplay intrudes on the story, which is interesting because it's usually the other way around. Like, mm. do you know the way so much of the story is delivered dur- uh, during audio logs, which is a neat idea yeah. because, you know, it's it's nice that you don't have to, like, you know, stop the gameplay to actually listen to the story. You don't mm. have to, like, be exposed to exposition. But the problem with that is, like, say, like, so this has happened so many times, even this time around, I'll pick up an audio log and suddenly I'll get attacked by two or three splicers and I'm, yeah. like, furiously trying to fight stuff. And I miss half the story because I'm concentrating on the fight. And, like, yeah. the story is good. It's a good, good story, but I'm missing half of it because I'm concentrating yeah. on the fighting. I found with the so. audio log, I think Bioshock was one of the first games to popularize using them to deliver story, and, like, a lot of games after them used them. But I found in Bioshock, I would get an audio log, and it actually was counterintuitive for what it was meant to do, because I would stop what I was doing and wait for it to play out. <laughs> so it was still stopping my gameplay experience. Because w- it was exactly what you're talking about. I was afraid to go in and get in an encounter with an enemy and miss something. I used to do the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So you're just, it's cutscenes, but like without the red tape, yeah. I guess. Can I give um, like a very, what would probably be an unpopular opinion, maybe a popular with some. I feel like, Sean, you might agree with me on this one. I feel <laughs> like Dead Space did a better job of audio logs than Bioshock did. Because yeah, like I would agree. They had loads of audio logs, but there's loads of moments where you're just in dark hallways there. So like yeah. you're just walking along and you've got this like voice you're listening to, which is probably from someone who's died. And that makes it that much more effective, mm. you know, yeah, where, totally. opposed to Bioshock, where you're listening to something like that. It, it, a lot of the time it feels almost irrelevant to what you're doing. So like, yeah. Yeah, totally. And there was times in Dead Space where you would get an audio log and you might be in the middle of like fighting necromorphs or something, but it was on the rare occasion where yeah. in Bioshock it was more uh, frequent, I suppose. Like Bioshock would have more frequent combat and it would be louder because you're shooting guns and yeah. everybody's shooting guns and screaming and stuff like yeah. that. So Yeah, yeah, and you had big daddies and everything as well. But sure, look, mm. anyway, uh, I haven't finished it yet. When I finish it, maybe I'll change my mind, but I've heard the ending isn't that great. We'll... We'll find out anyway when I it's get to it. I, I, I think you're you're at you're past the high point of the game, really. Yeah. To be honest, but yeah. uh, don't play the second one either. Mm, the second one isn't great. I didn't finish it. I played half. Of it. It, I was like, it's not grabbing me. It's fine. It, I'd say, yeah, that's true to say. If Steve doesn't like the first one, the second one isn't going to change his mind. Mm. But you do yeah, get to play as a big daddy, which is sort of fun. Yeah, you know? the really slow guys. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think you're quite as slow in the game though. I can't remember, but um. I probably yeah. won't play it. Like, I mean, In- I, I played Infinite and I thought that was... Oh. I actually preferred Infinite to the original Bioshock, believe it or not. Because it was more like swashbucklery, like, you know, mm. more fun. Mm. I did like but, Infinite um, as well, yeah. Again, it, was, it didn't blow me away. Again, the, uh, the gameplay got in the way of the story, so... Yeah, yeah fair but anyways, enough. Anyways, sure. I'll let you know anyway when I finish this. So, on that note, sure. 
Okay, so I think that about wraps up uh, this podcast. Uh, so we've had three very different studios there. Mm-hmm. Um, great discussion about all three. Unfortunately, you know, they all <laughs> had a, an unfortunate demise. May they rest in peace. May they rest in peace, <laughs> exactly. Um, so thanks to uh, Michael and Steve. Um, if you liked this format, if you liked the idea of uh, defunct game studios, please do let us know in the comments below. Uh, we'd always appreciate a like and a subscribe. If you like that all these people lost their jobs, no, <laughs> please give a heart to this. Um, I start that again. No, no, no. It's good. It's good. But, uh, um, yeah, we want to do more podcasts. We want to. We might explore this uh, topic again. Yeah. But we we want to talk about loads of different things. So well, if one, there's anything you wanted us to talk about as well, throw it in the comments. Yeah, true. One one thing I noticed when researching for this podcast was just the sheer amount of defunct games. Oh my students. god! Yeah. So this is something yeah. we could return to if you guys are interested. Just let us know. Even just from EA. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> yeah. EA alone. Um, yeah. So thanks very much, guys. Thanks for watching, listening, whatever way you're doing it. And um, yeah, we'll see you in the next one. Sayonara.